and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer. In today's very special episode, what we're going to be doing is answering all of your questions. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been asking you guys, our listeners, to send in any questions you might have for our folks at 11FS to get involved, whether they were fintech related or not. And today, me and the team are going to be doing a well, as good a job as we can to try and give you some answers. Um, before we start, we want to tell you about some of the things that we're working on here at 11FS and hear a bit of a word from our sponsors as well. The banking industry has lots of baggage. So, well, we've been thinking, what if you could build a bank from scratch? Join us and some very special guests as we hit a reset button. Our latest After Dark virtual live podcast recording takes place on Wednesday, the 15th of September. Head to bit.ly forward slash fi after dark. That's bit.ly forward slash fi after dark. To sign up now, you definitely won't want to miss this one. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. All right, let's get started. As always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by my colleague, Simon Taylor, Chief Product Officer at 11FS Foundry, and Jason Bates, Deputy CEO at 11FS. How are you guys doing today? How's it going, Jason? Pretty well, apart from uh, a few technical issues plaguing my morning. But uh, what would tech be without the odd problems with video calls and podcasts? Uh, technical gremlins, as if uh, working from home, you'd think we'd have all of those ironed out over the last 18 months, wouldn't you? But uh, uh, Simon, how are you doing? I'm really good. I'm now thinking about what a technical gremlin looks like. Do they work in IT support? Is it based on the movie Gremlins? I'd love to see that meme happen. But here we are. There's an NFT coming to the market very shortly, I imagine, isn't there? But uh, anyway, great to have you guys on board. Let's get started with uh, answering a, a few of the questions. So the first one that we had that came through was from Sophie Winwood, who is an associate at Anthemus. Let's hear what Sophie had to ask. If you were a fintech company, what fintech company would you be and why? All right, folks, what, what do you think? Uh, what, what fintech would you be if you could be a fintech? It's a hard one, isn't it? Um, the first thing that came to mind was Anna Money in the UK, because I really like that they're a bit quirky and a bit odd. And I generally see myself as a little bit weird, but in a really good, hopefully positive, non-threatening way. Um, and that's kind of Anna Money's vibe. Um, but actually, then there's like, what fintech do you aspire to look be a bit like? And I've got to say right now, um, the guys at Ramp are really crushing it. They're delivering lots of features. They're really creative. Um, so, you know, fintech goals and everything else. And every other fintech that I didn't name, I love you too, um, just before you blow up my DMs. But those were the first that came to mind. It is interesting. Which one do you think you are and which one do you aspire to be? They might be different things, haven't they? Jason, what do you, what do you reckon? Which, uh, If you were a fintech, what fintech would you be? I have no idea. I don't even know how to like pass this question. Like, If I was a fintech, what fintech would I be? Um, I think, I can tell you what I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be a, a heavy predatory lending fintech. 
Um, and unfortunately, like financial services is tends to be built around lending deposits in some way or, you know, um, uh, lending for a for a, a much higher interest rate that you can get in the market. So that's 90-something percent of fintechs have to do some kind of lending, which I don't think is a good thing in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So I don't know, like maybe I don't want to be a fintech or one of today's fintech. Maybe there's, maybe there's something else. Yeah, it's worrying, isn't it? I mean, that makes you a non-profit making fintech though. And there's plenty of those out there, isn't there? So we've got to, got to be careful. We've spoken about this before. Like I think it, in the financial products layer, then you make money with lending. You make money with net interest margin, fees and charges. But if you're doing jobs for people, if you're doing something for people, then that's uh, subscription, freemium, premium, uh, ad supported, like you're providing value and you're getting paid for that in some way. Um, and and I think that's where the future is. Like uh, you, you've got that financial products layer, but every fintech doesn't have to make money through its financial products. It can actually deliver something based on those service the services overlay. So maybe I'd be I'd be Snoop. I'd be I'd be someone looking to use open banking in order and not the uh, lending business model in order to drive growth across across everything else. I'd, I'll be Google personal financial management. Like that's who I'll be. Nice. What about you, David? I mean, I think I'd go for it's probably maybe slightly unpopular vote here, but I'd go for Revolut. Like I, I think if I had to be a fintech, I'd be Revolut because they're just relentless. And actually, I think at the people who at the end of all of the things that are said and done that will be successfully running a global entity, you know, that is profitable. I think it's going to be those guys. So uh, you might not like the the journey, but you're definitely going to like the results. So uh, I, I got to say, if I think about one thing when I think of David Breer, relentless is definitely near the top of that list. That's pretty true. There you go. Oh, it's relentless or caffeinated, isn't it? It's going to be one of those two things. Bit of both. All right. Uh, Sophie, thank you very much for the, the question. Uh, we'll move on to our next one then. So uh, next up, we have uh, one in from the one and only Mr. Sam Moore, key account executive over at Google. All right. Uh, let's hear what Sam had to ask. Hey everybody, it's Sam Moore. A little blast for the past. I have two quick questions. The first is, did anybody ever find my Ray-Ban sunglasses from that FinTech Insider we did at the OP Beach Party in Helsinki back in 2017? Um, if you did find them and you're wondering why every time you put them on, everything's blurry, it's because they were prescription. So that explains that um, question. I'm sure you all have had forever in a day. Second one, how surprised are you by the rise of the neobanks in the U.S. as compared to the growth of the neobanks? in the UK, say Chime, for example, and the success it's had over here. Love to get your feedback on a comparing the two markets. Super interesting. I've been, I've been wearing those sunglasses for like two years and not told Sam, and I wondered why I couldn't see properly. So that's uh, that's good. We will get them back to you, Sam. Don't worry. Um, wh what do you guys think? Uh, are you surprised uh, by the rise of neobanks in the US? Uh, I mean, there's it's interesting when you start seeing the the sizes of the customer bases that they're attracting. Uh, but, you know, the US is a pretty damn big population, isn't it? So, you know, 330 million getting up to sort of 10, 12 million customers. Simon, is that is that a sign of success? 
Yeah, I think so. And the economics are different, right? So the problem with the UK neobanks is just having a card out there isn't a great way to make money because of our friend interchange. So, you know, the the revenue you get when somebody swipes their or uses their card uh, in, in store as an issuer, as a neobank, is like 0.3% of the transaction. In the US, it's closer to one, one and a half percent. And if you have 15 million customers and you're getting 1% of their transactions, get, that's a decent amount of revenue revenue, it might not be mad profitability, but it's a nice little business. Um, and so you see that as that sort of um, pie gets sliced, more people win in, in the journey. So like bootstrapping a neobank off of interchange is entirely possible in the US in a way that it isn't really in Europe. The interesting question to kind of to the first point that Jason was making is what comes next? Do they move into lending or do they go more like PayPal and Square and offer lots of other things and go to, and, and Revolut to go to that super app category? So the US, not surprised because of the economics and also not surprised because it's a great entrepreneurial nation. Like they'll just get stuff done. Um, lots of entrepreneurs trying to do interesting things and lots of customers, really big market. So not surprised and super excited by the US right now. It's just like New York is, is I think, taking the crown from London as the fintech capital of the world and the most exciting, most energetic place to be in fintech. Wash your mouth out. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, I, lot I of said it. Brits get spitting out their tea right now, uh, Simon, to that. But uh, I mean, what, what do you think, Jason? 67 million people in the UK, uh, you know, Monzo, Revolut, Starling, you know, we're seeing what, five, six million customers in, in a few of them. You know, we're seeing, what, 12, 13 million, Simon, in the US with a 330 million. I mean, is this the early signs of success? Yeah, I think Sam's question's interesting because, look, we know uh, we know challenger banks grow, but we also have all been in rooms with people telling us that the, um, you know, it's a sticky market and there's a lot of uh, inertia. Like, are people... Are people changing? And I think that's the question. Okay, they've got um, 13 million customers, um, but is that because they've changed from other banks or are they just opening it as an additional account? And, and if you don't know that, then, you know, it's another Venmo, it's another discretionary spending card that lets me hold the money on and, and spend against it, you know, which is arguably the Monzo model. Um, then that's a very different answer than if 13 million people have really uh, switched from Wells Fargo, um, because then something major has happened. Like when you look at the sort of Chime website and it talks about, you know, uh, better online banking, no hidden fees, get paid two days early, grow your savings. There's nothing, there's nothing that sort of really stands out that makes you go, oh, wow. There's just some good features with a good execution. So, I th- so that's that's my question. It's it's not. Um, I'd be surprised if they're now the primary account of thirteen million customers. I wouldn't be surprised if they're the discretionary spending card of thirteen million Americans, because against the um, you know the backdrop of credit cards being massive, if people want more opacity, uh, more trans- transparency in their spending, then it's a good it's a good proposition and it works. Mm. It's fascinating. I think the thing that I am surprised about in the US, if I'm honest with you, is not how successful they are or aren't being. It's it's almost the the route to market. I, I mean, the Varos getting charters like that to me is surprising in a market where you you sort of don't have to in in particularly in the US market, given what they're trying to do. So, to your point, 
Jay, I guess if they're trying to be that discretionary thing, I mean, in fact, uh, Simon, your uh, brain food this week was was very much about that in terms of like, do they really even need to be a bank, right? So is that the surprising thing in the US, do you think right now, Simon, that they're actually becoming a bank? Yeah, actually, like, do you really want to be a bank? Do you want that extra regulatory overhead? Because getting a charter is hard, keeping it's harder. And so, like, the lending business model, if you look at the companies that have gone public that have done lending, the first generation of, like, uh, lenders um, and peer-to-peer lenders that have come to market, their share price has not done particularly well because the market values a lending business at X but a tech business at Y. If you look at the share price of Square and PayPal, who, yeah, okay, so they have sort of some banking licenses around the world for certain specific activities, but it's not a, a universal consumer-facing charter license like Varro has gotten and Chime is intending to get. So that space of like, what did I do? Uh, compare that with Nubank, who has got the full license and is absolutely tearing the market um, to shreds in, in Brazil and now Mexico. But that's a very different market. You can make a lot of money out of just good banking in LATAM in a way where the US is like halfway between Europe and LATAM in that it's quite a good lending market. It's a really good interchange market. But what's going to be most successful and what does the what problems do consumers ultimately have? Chime's great wedge was oh, there's a lot of underserved consumers who are just struggling to make it paycheck to paycheck. Actually, this get paid earlier is my wedge product, and then transparency is the thing that keeps you. But how do they add more value to that customer over time, and what's going to give them feature velocity? And Revolut's feature velocity is phenomenal, whereas some of the folks with charters, maybe can they keep up with that? That would be would be an interesting one to play with. Uh, I guess the the other point, though, and again, we, we're we're trying to guess at the drivers that have got them to 13 million customers. But one one obvious sort of route is that they pay half a percent interest in a market where, I was just looking up, the national average is currently 0.06%. So it could be, you know, just people saying, well, look, I've got my, I've got all my money in, you know, I need it in an instant access account, and they'll give me half a percent, no one else will do. And so across the US, it's just people saying, well, actually, that's the best. So, and that's funny because suddenly the, you know, amazing digital bank and the, um, you know, get paid two days earlier and stuff, none of that matters because it could just be rate tots just swooping in to say, love it, VC money giving me, um, you know, uh, paying me some some interest against against nothing. So it all, for me, depends on that, what use, what usage figures, what the average balance, like the stuff that we can't see behind the 13 million customers is really the explanation as to if they're succeeding or if they're just buying traffic. Mm. I mean, 0.06 interest rate. We wonder why, uh, you know, fractional share buying uh, apps and uh, cryptocurrency are doing so well as an investment thing, you know, like uh, weird, right? All right, we're going to have to move on, though. Uh, I mean, we could talk about Sam and Sam's question for a long time, but uh, great to hear from you, Sam, and thank you very much for your question. Okay, so the next question comes from Roxana Mohamedian Molina. Uh, from Blend Network over on email. Uh, the question was, JP Morgan's CEO recently said the future of lending was non-bank lending, and Starling said that they were on the lookout to buy a fintech non-bank lender. Uh, what are your thoughts on this rebundling between fintechs and the banks? Um, what do you guys think? It's um, it's definitely something, I mean, on the last 
four or five episodes of, uh, of FinTech Insider, I'm pretty sure the thing that someone's done the first time that they've raised is basically buy somebody else to accelerate their product roadmap, which is, uh, as uh, it was, was pointed out by Roxana, like Starling's acquisition makes a great deal of sense, but we've seen somebody like Solaris Bank do it, haven't we? And, you know, various other people in the mix. So, uh, Jason, what do you think on this one? Is this the uh, trend that we will continue to see? I think it's good to unpack what non-bank lending is really about, because in the end, what is what is being a bank? It's a it's a business model. You take deposits, you lend those out, and therefore you're a bank lender. You're not magicking the money out of any out of thin air. Well, you kind of are, but that's another conversation. Um, but essentially, you're taking deposits and then you're lending them out to uh, to other people. So those deposits are a great cheap source of capital because you're paying people absolutely no interest at the moment on their savings, but charging someone else 25% on their credit card debt or something. So it's a, it's a great business model and a way of doing it. But, but it comes with some... Uh, some problems because you can only lend out a, a certain multiple according to the PRA and the FCA of the deposits that you've got. So unless you can really scale those deposits, you can't do a lot of lending and lending is where you make all the money. So there's almost like this natural break uh, uh, around how fast you can grow and what you can make as cash. So how do you break that? Well, you don't lend deposits. You just lend capital from elsewhere, from the money markets, from sovereign wealth, from wherever. You're still making a ton of money. You're not now lending other people's deposits. So it's an easier thing around the PRA and the FCA. And arguably, you could scale massively and very quickly. And I think that's the world where we're in, you know, uh, in a big, mature banking market. Bank lending really makes sense. It's a really great model. But actually, if you're looking to scale massively and there's loads of of, uh, money swelling around the system, then this is a good thing to do. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Simon, it, it sort of, in one weird way, sort of breaks the traditional banking model, doesn't it? That seesaw of, I take deposits at this amount, and I lend it at this amount, and I make the money in the middle. Like, uh, that's sort of breaking when actually it's a, uh, a different form of balance sheet, isn't it? And I think post-financial crisis, the amount banks can lend has gone down as well, because as Jason was saying, not just the PRA and the FCA, but Basel III rules suggest banks just aren't as efficient. They have to hold more capital and they can't lend as much. So they can continue raising deposits, but there's more demand for lending than there is in the market. And that's why companies like BlackRock and asset managers have filled the gap. This is what JP Morgan's um, CEO is pointing at, is the rise not just of the non-bank lenders that you would interact with, but this secondary market that buys that debt, that buys the lending, um, that sort of sits behind it. So you've got a shadow banking system that's really emerged. And some of the banks aren't necessarily too happy about that because you pass these rules post-financial crisis to prevent banks from going bust. And all of that demand has just gone somewhere else that's not regulated in quite the same way. So I'm not surprised if there's demand in the market for lending, we're seeing other people pop up and fulfill that demand in different ways. Uh, But I really think there's something in that rebundling story that's quite interesting uh, about Fintechs can get to a certain size and they can scale and they can get customer acquisitions, but do they want to be doing lending like a traditional bank would do? Or actually, do they want to rebundle all of the things that are out there and and, and go for a bit of a different business model? So Starling doing, it's one thing, but who else are we going to see? We're going to see marketplace models. What's, uh, what's going to pop up inside of Revolut tomorrow? That sort of, I'm not necessarily originating the lending. I'm not doing it on my balance sheet, but you as a customer can still get lending. What's the difference to the customer? 
Well, and it's it's funny, isn't it, as well? I think a lot of people are quite um, short memories, you know. Uh, gigantic banking organizations didn't start like gigantic banking organizations. Like, uh, there used to be this thing called Abbey. Now it just got consumed into Santander. You know, like, people who win in the market and therefore have capital to invest in taking out competition or buying competition to extend what they're doing. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily strategic in the sense of like, well, this was the plan all along. But I think there is something that goes back to, you know, we've had a conversation before about, you know, features, products and businesses. Um, I think in the environment where we're at, which is, you know, pretty aggressive startup, you know, um, views that actually are all of these businesses that are being created really do the founders have longevity in mind in terms of becoming the the next stage? Or are they, you know, Simon, as, as we've talked about a number of times before, are they seeing it like, a, like, I can build a slice of financial services and in four years' time sell it to somebody and, you know, swim off in a yacht? And neither of those are bad outcomes, right? So, like, I like yachts. Apparently, they're really <laughs> nice. Um, would want one of those. Uh, so if somebody's gone and done that, but actually it's added to, an, like if you think about the movement towards those super apps, if I build something that's serving a niche and a gap in a market and gets acquired, or maybe it becomes a partner to many of these apps, right? There's there's not just one Revolut, there's not just one PayPal, there's not just, there's, there's many, many of them. And I think the partnership between, is it uh, Afterpay um, acquisition by Square, that's an interesting model because buy now, pay later is huge in its own right, but actually Square acquiring them is is really, really interesting because it fits into their overall ecosystem. And being acquired for $29 billion, that's that's a lot of yachts. It is, it is. And then I guess, uh, you know, only time will tell whether this is uh, just a, you know, a few data points or a trend, right? So uh, let's keep our eye on this one. But given the amount of money, I'm sure it won't be the last acquisition that we see in the market. So uh, anyway, let's move on to the next one. So we, uh, our next question was, uh, before we just head into the break, uh, is a fun one. And this is from Ali Patterson from Fintech Finance. Uh, let's hear from what Ali had to say. What up, Fintech Insiders? It's Ali Patterson here from uh, Fintech Finance FF News. Got a, uh, a tricky question for you. If you were to be given all of the social media accounts of any neobank and you could do with whatever you want on there, which neobank do you think, or bank in general really, you won't be able to cancel? I, you can say whatever you want on their social media channels and their brand is just so strong that you won't be able to cancel them. Good luck. I think on, on Ali on this one, he's essentially saying if 11FS did what 11FS does on somebody else's social media, which bank wouldn't get shut down? Thanks, Ali. Like, we'll take that, we'll take that quite, uh, quite personally. Well, I, I think I think there's a nuance to the question here because he didn't say like which bank would get shut down by the FCA and the PRA. He said which bank would be cancelled. So for me, that's you know where could a social media mob not form and and close that that bank down. And so actually, my answer to this is that you wouldn't pick a bank that's actually virtuous like Triodos or, or Monzo, where actually they really do think about gambling blocks and people's lives and uh, not putting uh, pronouns or dead names onto cards. Um, like Because that bank can get cancelled if they take the misstep because suddenly the, the most ardent supporters become the, uh, the most ardent critics. So my answer to this is Revolut. 
because I, I don't think they're, they're, um, they're aiming at that crowd. They're a transactional look. We're just here in order to do it, you know, the best for you. You've seen with criticism of, of their really hard hitting, you know, hard delivery style and, and the way that they sort of commercially incentivize some of their staff. Like, I just don't think that they, um, that customers are with them because of their, because of that part of their brand. They're a very hard transactional player. So I actually think, you know, they could say something out of all of the neo banks, they could probably say something the most controversial and, and not get cancelled by the, uh, you know, the pitchforks uh, and the, uh, the torch wielding mob. That's interesting. I didn't take it as a, uh, but you are right. It's the cancel culture vibe. So it's the it's the community shutting down the the reaction to it. Uh, yeah, good good shout. Yeah, they they um, they seem to be uh, able to withstand anything in that sense, don't they? Which is uh, which is good. What do you reckon, Simon? Who would uh, who would you vote for? I, I've mentioned them already in the show, but Anna Money. Um, Anna Money has the tone of voice where it's genuinely are they are they telling the truth or not? Is this a joke or not? And their audience has been trained to understand that their their tongue is planted firmly in their cheek. Uh, they did a a, a tweet storm all about penguins um, and the penguins that taught them uh, all of the really important lessons in life that has enabled them to deal with SMB's challenges. And and I, I learned a lot from those penguins. I really did. Uh, they also posted some of their favorite um, birds and uh, named each of the birds in, in a tweet storm and thread. Now, why this is not more popular is, is beyond me. That got like 10 likes. Maybe this just speaks to me and my weird sense of humor. But like, th- what what could they not say having having done that? So that's one area. I'm going to jump in actually with, with a, um, I think the perfect financial services organization to do this doesn't exist. And it would be Ryan Reynolds Bank. Because the, the stuff he puts out on YouTube or Twitter which is basically as like Deadpool, like tongue in cheek as you could ever get. I read a blog post on how he's basically the next marketing genius. He's got 2.3 million followers on YouTube to watch ads for his next films. Like, you know, yeah. uh, so Ryan Reynolds Bank would also be my, uh, my second get, my second go. Well, if you're if you're listening, Ryan, and you would like to invest in a bank, then uh, do get in touch. Um, Go on, Brian. I was just—I was just going to say, there's a company called Party Round. If you want to follow those guys on Twitter, it's really not clear what they do, um, but I suspect there's a neo bank or fintech under there somewhere. But they are just getting attention with random stuff, um, and there is sort of like um, there's. Uh, I'm going to hit the swear filter here, but shit posters on Twitter get a lot of attention. And actually, if you can post the right kind of shit, then you will get a lot of attention. And that's really actually surprisingly important in a full-time job. So getting attention in the attention economy matters. And I don't think you can be cancelled if you do that the right way. But getting the right tone of voice on that is really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, do you know, I'd, I'd go for... So Habito. I think Habito have got a good thing. Else. Like they At some point, they sent me... Um, uh tea cloths you know dish dish cloths uh that were basically they were the karma sutra and i'm like uh, i couldn't take them home do you know what i mean i was worried that my kids would be like uh, a little bit too inquisitive on those things so i feel like a brand that can do those types of things actually to your point around tongue-in-cheek the other one would be uh i mean jason can you remember when we were at uh, money 2020 a couple of years ago and we were stood in front of the rocket bank stall and we were like I think we were offended to like a few things that we saw, but but the brand ethos as an entirety sort of carried it off, didn't it? It was just like, it felt like all of your 
teenage angst in a TV advert was just being sort of, you know, put up in front of the front of you. I think that's a really good point because culturally, you know, the Russian teen is a, is offended by very different set of things than the, you know, the left coast American teen. So there is this cultural element here that actually some of this we're talking about from a particular cultural context where in different countries, a variety of things, you know, will affect the mob in different ways. It's true. The westernization of the world. All right. Uh, I feel like that got quite deep quite quickly, didn't it? Although I was talking about tea cloths as well. So uh, anyway, we're going to take a little bit of a quick pause. We'll be back with you very shortly. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments and full time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere. Thanks to deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D-E-E-L dot com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Okay, folks, welcome back. Let's dive right back into the the questions. The next one came from Daniel Lowther, who is the head of fintech at CC Group. Um, Let's hear from Dan now. Hello, wonderful 11FS folks. I hear you're looking for interesting and insightful questions from interesting and insightful people. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anyone at short notice, so I thought I'd ask you a question myself. Apologies in advance. It's about embedded finance and the now infamous phrase that embedded finance will make every company a fintech company. I want to know whether you think it will. And if it will, are they truly a fintech? And if it won't, who stands to gain the most? Uh, Simon, I think this was uh, your your mate over at A16Z saying this one. So uh, will every company become a, a fintech company? What do you think on that? Yeah, so on the Under the Hood podcast, as you referenced, uh, David, we did have uh, Angela Strange on the show. Um, and, and one of the things she said is, of course, that's a ridiculous statement and it's a marketing statement. But it's kind of like when Gary Vaynerchuk said every company will become a media company. It's not that every company will, it's that every successful company may want to include this because there are good reasons to do so. Uh, And so uh, the ones that have really jumped on this have been vertical SaaS businesses who can 2x to 5x their revenues. And you think about those non-bank brands that haven't done it yet, that really could. You think about the gig economy and dealing with their workers and riders. You think about the Airbnb and what could the lending look like inside of an Airbnb. So there are new ways to generate revenue from adding fintech into to what you do and that's going to be exciting for a lot of businesses because it's faster cheaper and easier than ever before to be able to do that because of the new providers um, in in the landscape but then 
Will every company do it? No. Did it always exist? In some way, yes. But I think what's really changed is those providers have made it much more possible. And uh, will every company become a media company? Will every company become a fintech company? I think it's a similar sort of question to me. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because it's like, will everybody, will every company be a fintech company? No, because most fintech companies probably have to be regulated in some sense if they're providing financial services instruments. Will every company potentially be able to get access to fintech or financial services revenue? Like, absolutely, and and that's really the point with embedded, isn't it, Simon? Where you know, actually, what we're seeing is people go, "Hey, I've got a massive community, and this problem that they have." Uh, I mean, the, uh, Tui, Alan over at Shopify said it. It's like, look, we created some problems for our customers by solving other problems. And it just so happened that these problems now get solved with financial services capability. So, you know, I think that's where we're seeing this happen more and more is almost the, you know, the the, the collateral damage of, of building something really, really impactful for your customers is you almost create other problems a little bit further down the funnel. And in many instances, people are finding maybe a lender product or embedding payments or you know other forms of financial services sort of solve that problem for them so I, I think this is almost the this is the extension uh, existential threat from a financial service if you're a big bank right now I think this is the big worry it's like because you know we've said it a million times over the last five years right these companies have got communities of people who actually like them and that's a problem if you're a big organization who people don't generally you know what do you think, Jason? I mean, we've, we've uh, spoken about this at, at length, probably on podcasts and, and definitely with clients that, you know, what is the future of financial services, retail financial services? Uh, and it's this split, this polarization, where a number of, of, um, of services actually uh, live in, in a, as a brand, as an app, as a website around everyday money and uh, my bills and committed spend and mid to long term finance and you know, it's not embedded because there's a job around taking a slab of salary and then making sure that you're managing all of those payments out of there in a way that you're saving for holiday, paying off your credit card, everything in between. And that's great for technology. That's an app. That's not embedded. That That's still going to live outside of that, that universe. But then there are a whole set of, of uh, requirements of financial services that belong at the point of need payments, escrow, point of sale lending, you know, insurance, where actually they do belong at the, at the, at the point where I buy something or, or I hire a car or I, um, I don't know, book a hotel room. So for me, this is about, you know, yes, uh, embedded finance will be at the point of need for a whole set of, a whole slew of things, wherever there's a commercial transaction. Does that make those companies fintech companies? Well, I guess it's what are they really focusing on? The hotel company is still going to be a hotel company. You know, the um, uh, the laptop retailer is still about laptops. But the secondary capabilities around either being a media company and being a, uh, a having fintech within their journeys in order that they round out that laptop sales into making uh, lives easier for customers who want to get a new laptop as well as uh, making money off that, of course. So I don't think it makes them a fintech company, but it does mean they they embed fintech and they have to have relationships through an API-based sort of business model. It's going to be really interesting on that, though, is at the point where, I mean, Apple uh, Apple Pay accounts for like, what, one and a half percent or something of the revenue of Apple every year. So it's it's minor. It's going to be fascinating when you start seeing organizations, particularly how profitable lending can be, where actually... 
uh, we will get to a point where the major revenue for their revenue line is going to be financial services revenue, but almost they can't stop focusing on the not. It's that it's the weird. It's going to be almost um, Pareto's law kind of playing out in the sense. It's going to be like that weird eighty twenty where actually they have to keep focusing on the uh, the the twenty because it really generates the opportunity for the eighty. It's kind of quite bizarre, but uh, that was deep. Um, Simon, what do you think? Yeah, it's already the case. I mean, 55% of Shopify's revenue comes from financial services in some shape or form, and they've only really just started doing lending. Actually, the big one is payments, whether it's accepting payments or helping people make payments in and around that. That has been the story, I think, for for a lot of these businesses over the last uh, sort of 12, 18 months, or even three years or so. As you look forward, you start to ask the question about lending, about insurance, about point-of-sale finance, and all of those sorts of things that become a lot more embedded. I, I guess where I, I leave this is like, did every company become an internet company? Not really. Does every company use the internet? Yes, they do. And actually, if finance is being deconstructed and unbundled, then how it gets rebundled is really exciting. And the question becomes, what job requires engagement? Like to Jason's point, I have to go to it as a destination. And what's enabling something else? And so thinking about the difference between engagement and enablement is going to be, I think, the strategy question for anybody in financial services. Uh, of course, there's there's opportunity, but there's also danger because I can envision a, a, a view of the world where it's like, hmm, this, this is going really well and uh, we'll offer everyone 0% interest-free payments over five years to buy their laptop. But if you default on a payment, then I'm going to hit you with you know 25% interest on, on it month on month. So all of a sudden, we get to that perverse uh, freemium premium model where actually it's 10% of the customers that are really paying for the credit of everyone else because now they're being you know, penalized for that. And so we see that in lending anyway. You know, we, we see people launch bank accounts that look phenomenally good on rewards, but on the negative side are absolutely crucifying people on the, uh, when they're into overdraft or unarranged overdrafts. So what you don't want is for that to be transferred over where, you know, people with money are, are getting great deals and they're living this, you know, great life. Um, but there's a proportion of the population then who are, you know, being hit by now the retailers as well as the banks. And we haven't we haven't seen that yet, have we? That that has to come at some point. You know, Apple's credit card in the US, we haven't seen the headline grabbing I'm in a hundred thousand pounds worth of debt, and you know, will Apple's brands sort of weather that setup or not? It's interesting, actually, as we've been talking about it. I've always thought, really, you know, embedded finance is about taking the uh, the solution to where the problem is. But maybe actually the the thing, and, and in why I mean that is like you know, Klarna and PayPal have been successful by putting the button as close to uh, the problem. But maybe in this sense, what we're seeing is people who are better at convincing customers that there is a problem to solve uh, rather than an existing problem that is a known known, uh, the ones who are being sort of most successful in this sense, like exactly as you say, Simon, with Shopify. So, uh, but anyway, there's a follow-up question to this that we actually had. Uh, So the the next question came really on top of of Dan's one from a a chap over on Twitter, Lee Brook Pierce, uh, who is a business development director at Invite. Um, and what he said was, uh, well, with embedded finance and buy now, pay later, likely to become a fundamental core to any customer interaction. Is there a bit of a, a danger that all of the best engineers are going to be sucked away from traditional financial services businesses? Because, I mean, and actually talent much more broadly as well, that is a 
you know, a, a drought globally in, in every sense for every business, right? So in, in the world where, well, do you want to work for, for a company where it's not a, um, a sort of a, a values-driven setup, but you're sort of focusing on building in a savings pot or a lending thing to get people into debt, rather than working for a company who's very much a purpose-driven organization who's there to empower, but, you know, uh, some of this is semantics and the storytelling around lending or products or however you do it. But what do you guys think? Is that is the sort of brain drain into non-FS going to really, really kick off soon? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the guys are on deck, so beyonddeck.com be are like the Lambda school, but for people wanting to change industries. And, uh, you know, uh, Lambda, of course, is the education for engineers and Beyond Deck is for people who are not technical getting into financial services. And what they're just seeing is so much demand for businesses and people to come into the fintech industry. There's just a real uh, lack of people with experience, especially on the engineering side. And if they do have experience, they're probably senior somewhere in a fintech or a founder of a fintech. You just cannot get this talent that has that experience. Uh, So you've got like the double whammy of engineers, there's a global like shortage of anyway. Engineers with fintech experience, it's sort of like a double cut again. So it is it is extra hard and that's already happening. And it's one of the reasons people come to 11FS is like, where do I go to find talent that's been there and done it before in financial services? And we'll know that when I try and deal with that payment system, this is what's going to go wrong. Uh, and I do think there is a, a real shortage of that. So yes, there's a danger they get sucked away from traditional businesses, especially when you consider, uh, I think it's one in four or one in five VC dollars is going into fintech. Fintech is the hottest thing in tech, period. So if I'm an engineer and I want to grow my grow my career, chances are I want to move in that direction. Mm. It's interesting. I wonder if, would the best FS, well, scrap FS, would the best engineering talent want to go and work in FS right now anyway? Because it's a little bit like, um, I'm not sure they have the tools that would keep people entertained. And I don't mean engineers need to be entertained, but the technology that's been implemented into most organizations, they've got the problems, but they don't actually have the solutions to build the next generation of solutions in place. So if you're talking about, you know, event-driven real-time architecture, it's just not quite there that actually would attract the people who want to code in the latest, greatest languages in order to do things. You know, we still see those stories of like that, that dude getting dragged out of retirement with all that COBOL experience to come and save the day, you know? So, um, but, but if they do have those things and you can create a purpose-driven organization that it's like financial services is an underpinner of everything in society, you get that right, you can start attracting talent. But uh, but maybe it's a bit of a, a narrative change as mu- and, and a technological change in order to attract the best talent in the first place. Well, I mean, we've, you know, we've had conversations with some of the ventures that we've been building around the world with clients where we have to go and talk to HR because the, the fundamental... Uh, not, not in a weird way, Jason, just no, so no, it's like, like I, I, head of HR. yeah, not in like a, I need to talk to HR now, that time moment, <laughs> like it's uh, more, more of a, more of a strategic HR moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but the fundamental, like the dominant paradigm in, in, in human resources in banks is, are that engineers are, are fungible. Actually, we can swap them around and actually I can get them cheaper nearshore or offshore and I can have a a, um, a deal with one of the big systems integrators and, and basically our cost base looks a lot better by having 10 engineers over there rather than 10 engineers here. 
But I think we know that um, that engineers aren't fungible. You can't just swap one for the other. There are such things as 10x engineers who really are that good in terms of architecting and building and executing against against technical architectures. So that, I think that's the the first part. Is that like uh, you know when I was at Monza, I was out. Uh, you know, trying to sweet talk people into joining to the the company and and pitched a lot more engineers than I did uh, for, to get investment, um, because actually you really did have to pitch them beyond the salary. Like, what do people want? They want autonomy. Well, that's going to be difficult in a bank. You know, they want uh, meaning. They want to feel like they're making an impact in the world. They want growth. So if we say, well, you're going to work on credit cards and, and um, you know, we, we want to, uh, to sell more or to, to do better on um, payments. And by the way, uh, you work for this guy who works for this guy, do what you're told, here's the requirement. Or when we're using an old language that really, you know, you probably know already and isn't going to be a growth thing, and we're not going to pay you as much. And there's going to be no lottery ticket moment for options and equity. Like that's a diff- difficult, you know, sell. So, so I think that's part of the problem that that actually in the the quest for talent, just you know, in a world where everyone is want wants the best engineers, not only in financial services but more broadly, then the question is, do you prioritise that? And how do you prioritise that? How do you know what actually makes engineers want to join your company? And how do you convince? you know, the uh, COO, the CFO, the head of HR, that actually this is a, a valuable investment when you've got nothing really to point at to say that the, you know, the three guys in Lithuania um, uh, aren't as good as the three guys I'm finding elsewhere who are just superstars at what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a constant one, isn't it? And, and as that uh, as that landscape changes and as uh, more and more people cotton on to uh, to really this being the direction of the uh, travel, then scarcity becomes even more scarce, doesn't it, in terms of uh, resources and ex- expertise in that sense. But uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think we probably agree this is going to be a constant challenge, but talent in one form or another, whether it's engineering or otherwise, is, is always really the uh, the biggest thing to sort of compete for. Um all right, we're going to have to move on. So the the next one was taking a bit of a look at, at payments. Um, it was from uh, not one, but actually two from Ivan Digba, who is uh, over at Payconic. Um, and it came over on email. The first one of them was, how would you compete with Visa MasterCard if you're in the shoes of EPI? That's the European Payments Initiative. Assuming the problem you're solving for is about making transactions cheaper in Europe. Um should we start with that one and we'll come to the next one next? But how would you compete with Visa and MasterCard is an interesting point, isn't it? Because really Visa and MasterCard are trying to figure out how they compete with everybody else at this stage, particularly Visa, right? They're uh, really uh, jumping on lots of different, back to our point earlier on around, if you've got the balance sheet to go and buy a thing, obviously a few of them haven't worked out with Visa's view with plaid and different things simon but but essentially they're they're trying to move up and down the value chain to create as you were saying earlier on around relevancy you know create even more relevancy to the people that they're servicing right yeah and visa acquired tink of course which is uh, one of the open banking players that has the ability to make payments and move payments around um, through the open banking rails if we can call it that uh, their visa are also very active in the stablecoin discussion around us dollar stablecoins um mastercard of course um acquired mx who's who's like not dissimilar from plaid and is looking into also acquired i think is it um Vocalink, the who built the fast payment scheme in the uk 
both of those brands are committed to being multi-rail. So it's, it's not just the cards and the fees, but it's all of these other rails and the rules and the brand that sits around it. So actually, uh, is the problem with Visa and MasterCard that you need to compete with their price? Well, there are already other rails and they're wrapping their arms around those. So they might be able to offer those cheaper rails. The thing you've really got to compete with them on is brand and acceptance. Those logos show up everywhere. And how are you going to go compete with that, I think, is a really interesting question. And I think the only way you could realistically compete is by doing something that maybe they're unwilling to or that they can't. And that would mean focusing on uh, things like uh, developer programmability, pick it up, plug it and use it sort of configurability. That is something that the stablecoin space does quite well. Uh, it's what China's trying to do with the digital currency electronic payment. That space where I can move money around a region or even around the world instantly for near free with better data and this money becomes like Lego, that would be really brave. Um, and it'd be kind of interesting to uh, adopt the open source movement uh, that's happening in that space rather than try and do the big top-down government-driven, I'm going to force you all to use it and everybody's going to use Visa and MasterCard anyway type of thing. Um, so, yeah. You got me going. I'll Did, get off my soapbox now. No, it's, it really is an interesting one because, uh, I mean, back to our point around, you know, the layers of the model and the layers of the industry. I mean, is the EPI initiative, or it's an initiative already within the eye, isn't it? That would be a weird one. So that would be EPII. But the EPI, is it is it essentially fighting the old version of what Visa and MasterCard are looking for, whereas Visa and MasterCard are striving to move up further into the services and the journeys through investments that they're making and the products that they're investing in that actually make them almost stickier to their customers that they're really sort of engaging with. So, uh, I mean, that, that point you were making earlier on around the sort of commoditized versus the you know the engagement well visa and mastercard are trying to move much 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 more over here i guess there's a danger if they take their eye though off the you know the bread and butter like we were sort of talking about with the embedded bit earlier on if shopify stops being awesome at doing what shopify does to focus on financial services more broadly then there's a risk that you uh you know you sort of face the war that you don't see coming to a certain degree but i i really feel like visa and mastercard is just so embedded globally in all of those rails as much as we say about the the fabric changing from a financial services perspective i think it would be something it would require something apocalyptic at this stage to for those guys to um to to, to lose but what do you think jay yeah i, I don't know i mean uh, i think the question's definitely not referring to visa, visa and mastercard as organizations but as the old card scheme networks, the duopoly, because that's the way the majority of, you know, those kinds of point of sale, you know, merchant retail kind of, um, transactions happen. And that's the big revenue stream that Visa and MasterCard make ridiculous amounts of money on. That now it's a bit like, you know, the, the Middle Eastern countries trying to diversify from oil. It's like Visa and MasterCard know they need to get out of this captive terminal, captive network thing, because... That's under under threat because of ubiquitous uh, phones, um, smartphones, and internet. So, so that they're at risk. You know, there's a there's definitely something there, especially considering the fees that they charge to carry that data, whereas all other data interchange, you know, is is approaching zero. So if that's the case and, and you want to compete with them, what do you do? Well, you can't go head on. You can't just say, great, we're just going to, you know, go for it. You need a beachhead in some way. And that beachhead is 
another geography. You know, Alipay could could very easily leverage their you know, dominance in in China and, and already convincing retailers here to take that. And actually, it's uh, with the metadata and uh, additional services, loyalty rewards that that could bring. If they start to get the big retailers, then they can leverage that that belief. Um, or, or it's about, you know, as Simon was saying, leveraging technology like PISP as a, as a mechanism. Because then I can go to a retailer and say, well, actually, rather than waiting three days to get Jason's money from that uh, transaction, we can move it today. So your cash flow position is going to look a lot better when we, when we do that. And by the way, we're going to charge a fraction of the fee in order to make that move than you pay otherwise. So we don't need to get rid of Visa and MasterCard, but actually we're going to introduce this as a, as an additional payment thing that then you can, um, you know, then you can uh, benefit from. And if everyone starts using that online, do you then make a physical thing and start? Yeah, you could probably, you know, weasel your way in. So I think I think part of this is what big retailers can you get to accept this new payment mechanism? You need that killer app um, where actually everyone benefits, the consumer benefits, and the retailer benefits to a, to a big enough extent that they're willing to integrate this uh, and move this up the priority list of things that they want to do. And that, for me, that as you say, that killer app, that would have to come from something where actually the payment rails nobody cared about. That killer app would have to come higher up in the stack that made your adoption of the lower rails almost a, I don't care so long as it does that thing. And that's that's super interesting. I mean, the only thing that even potentially is giving it a go, Simon, and I can already... I can already, I know what your response is going to be. It's like what Ripple tried to do with a kind of a global network of different endpoints to to get there. And that's not really, you know, despite quite a lot of huffing and puffing, it's not really got us to the uh, the right place, has it? Yeah, I think there are others doing that and probably doing a better job of it, actually. Um, as much as people um, sort of have their concerns about Tether, the US dollar stablecoin, actually USDC is a standard that's been embraced by both Visa and MasterCard. And this is a network that runs on Ethereum. So any developer can pick up and use and move something that looks and feels like dollars and for the most part is backed by by dollars. So Actually, I do think that's kind of out there. Just people aren't paying a lot of attention attention to it because it runs on Ethereum. And Ethereum is this like general purpose thing. You don't really see it as a money movement thing. You see it as what even is it? it it's like a Swiss army knife. It does so many things. But it's like an operating system for the whole world uh, for moving value. And somebody built an app that allows you to move dollars. And actually, if you're in the US, that's quite interesting because I can move dollars around the world without needing the banking system. If you're a US regulator, that could be scary, but that could also be a good thing because you want to protect the dollar as the global reserve currency, which is why, again, I think Visa and MasterCard are both uh, moving but, in that direction. I guess that yeah. you know, building on David's uh, well, point, while we're talking about it as a, about an Ethereum-based system, it's lost because actually the, the killer value proposition has to be what it does for me, not how it does it. And so, you know, the, uh, the minute that something happens in that space where we're not talking about it being on Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, uh, and it's being successful, then we're, we're in the right space. I agree. It's always about what it does, not what it is, isn't it? So uh, on that note, uh, we're going to have to wrap up, though. There's one last question, and it's a bit of a silly one. It's from our very own Eleven Social Media and Community Manager, Tom Stafford. Uh, the question was, the inevitable 
ending of this where, you know, 11FS gets turned into a movie, who would play you guys? So, uh, Simon, uh, I reckon I have a bit of an inkling who, who's going to be your one, but uh, let's go. Who would play you in the movie of 11FS? The only one I could think of was Ryan Reynolds because he's better looking than me, funnier than me, and it would be like, that's the one I want. I don't know who would actually do it because, like, I'm a bit weird looking and I'm silly and I don't know kind of who has that, but I'll, I'll go with that one. Oh, I would have gone with The Rock for you, like that. He's he's the one because he's because he's funny and he's like super dedicated to like being super fit and in eating so so healthy all of the time. Like I would have gone for him. Can you imagine like The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, and someone else making a remake of like or a remake, liking a making a film of Eleven FS? Like that. I feel, would be I feel that social asset's going to be created. I, I just it? love but, uh, to have them say the scripts of some of the things that we've said in meetings because it. Would, it would just be the ultimate in surreal entertainment. It would. What, what do you think, Jay? Who would uh, he'd play you the movie? I have no idea. I have literally no idea. Um, I don't. I'm, my my wife says I look like a, a, a British actor. I can't remember his name, so that's not really helpful. But no idea. I think I I go for um, Samuel L. Jackson. So just so we could really dramatize the beginning of 11FS, like the recruitment in the way that the Avengers was recruited, that type of vibe. I think I'd go for that. So uh, uh, get those motherfucking banks off that motherfucking plane as well, right? We can really sort of go with that vibe. But uh, all right, guys. Uh, and suddenly we've got an adult uh, tag on our iTunes. Hey, I think Simon Swed first. Like he, he, he kicked this party <laughs> off really. So uh, this, this is the origins of the show right back here. You know, Indeed, indeed. Right. We better wrap up though. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Simon, where can people learn a little bit more about what you're up to? You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me simon at 11fs.com. Very good. And Jason? Uh, Jason at 11fs.com. Very good. You can find me mostly lurking on LinkedIn these days, so you can uh, find us over there. Thank you very much for listening. If you have liked what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Been having some really fun ones lately, so uh, it also really helps other people uh, find the shows on various different places. Today's show was not obviously an exhaustive list of all the questions that we had uh, but asked if you really want to keep them coming we'll do more of these shows so just keep hitting us with them uh, if you want to drop us anything else you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or you can email podcast at 11FS.com uh, or actually I, I guess at this stage you can call the hotline as well can't you and keep those guys coming keep the questions coming we'll keep answering them thank you very much everybody goodbye goodbye